Hello and welcome to this month's episode of the JPO Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans, and as usual, we'll spend the next 20 to 30 minutes reviewing about a half dozen articles from this month's print issue. We'll span a variety of specialties, including sports, spine, trauma, hip, and more, and we'll bring you three interviews with authors, including Jim Sanders from UNC Chapel Hill, Salil Upasani from Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego, and Joseph Janicki from Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago. So with no further ado, let's jump in. We'll start with an article from Seattle Children's from senior author Greg Schmally entitled Concomitant ACL Reconstruction and Temporary Hemiepiphysiodesis in Skeletally Immature Patients. In summary, the authors suggest that we may be able to reduce the risk of ACL re-rupture in kids with genuvalgum by correcting their alignment at the time of ACL reconstruction. The authors report on eight skeletally immature patients with ACL tears in the setting of genuvalgum. They were treated with ACL reconstruction using hamstring autograft and guided growth using an 8-plate on the medial distal femur. All ACL grafts were placed through the physes and fixed with suspension techniques. Previous literature has demonstrated a risk of ACL rupture with valgus loads and has suggested that valgus knees may have more instability after ACL reconstruction. So, the authors began performing this combined procedure based on the assumption that genuvalgum may increase the risk of a second ACL injury after reconstruction. Their procedures successfully improved genuvalgum in all patients at the same rate observed in patients treated with guided growth without ACL tears. However, a much larger study would be needed to determine whether this combined procedure actually prevents ACL re-rupture. Still, the theoretical basis is sound, so I for one will plan to start screening ACL patients with standing full-length EOS alignment films and will recommend guided growth at the same time as ACL reconstruction for valgus knees. And with that, I'll hand things off to one of my co-hosts, Josh Holt from the University of Iowa, who's going to discuss our second article in the day, looking at the treatment of post-skiffy deformity in hips, as well as a conversation between Josh and senior author Salil Upasani from San Diego. Thank you, Carter. That's a very interesting article. So next, we'll have a, a very timely article on a popular topic in pediatric and adolescent hip. It's the article by Dr. Upasani and his team at Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego entitled, Comparison of Surgical Outcomes Between a Triplane Proximal Femoral Osteotomy and the Modified Dunn Procedure for Stable, Moderate to Severe Slipped Capital Femoral Epiphysis. So in this article, the authors compare the radiographic outcomes, complication rates, and revision rates between Imhauser-type triplane proximal femoral osteotomy and the modified Dunn procedure. Compared 12 patients with loader-stable, moderate-to-severe slips who were then treated with Imhauser osteotomy with 14 patients treated with modified Dunn. All the patients had at least one year follow-up. The authors hypothesized that the modified Dunn would result in improved radiographic deformity, but that it would be associated with increased complication and revision rate. To their surprise, all post-operative radiographic outcomes, including epiphyseal slip angle, articular surface to trochanteric distance, and the medial proximal femoral angle were similar between the two groups. Only the neck shaft angle was found to be significantly different at final follow-up, with the modified done being 140 degrees and the Imhauser being 130 degrees. Although the overall complication rate was similar between the groups, the most clinically significant finding of their study was the difference in complications identified in the two groups. Avascular necrosis, probably the most feared and clinically devastating complication of Skiffy and its treatment, was not seen in the Imhauser group, while 29% of the modified done group experienced this complication. It is because of this increased risk of AVN in the modified Dunn cohort that the group at Rady no longer performs the modified Dunn for stable slips. 
Rather, they now print patient-specific 3D models to preoperative plan their Imhauser osteotomies in hopes of minimizing the surgical risks while maximizing the correction obtained. All right, well, it is my great pleasure to welcome to the uh, podcast Dr. Salil Upasani from Rady Children's in San Diego to uh, discuss this topic further. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for having me here. So, Dr. Upasani, you hypothesized that the modified done would result in improved radiographic measures when compared with the Imhauser osteotomy group, but generally didn't see this as a difference in your results. So do you think that this is because that you were less successful in getting the correction that you hoped for with the modified done, or do you think it's because that you were actually able to better get correction than you expected with the Imhauser? Thanks, Josh. I think uh, it's actually a little bit of both uh, because with the modified done procedure, it's a little challenging to figure out exactly where to put the epiphysis. So even though you feel like you're getting an ideal correction, putting the epiphysis back onto the top of the femoral neck, going back and looking at our radiographs, it showed that there was still about a 15 to 20 degree slip that was present. And I think especially in these stable healed slips where that are kind of focused on in this paper, um, I think there's a balance between not overdoing that correction where you might put that posterior retinaculum on stretch and, you know, tension the vessels resulting in avascular necrosis. So you sometimes maybe underdo it a little bit um, to allow for the perfusion of the femoral head. But on the other hand, we we're also pretty impressed with the correction with the uh, triplane proximal femoral osteotomy, because I think traditionally there's a thought that you can only correct about 40 degrees of the slip with your flexion component of the osteotomy. And so we were pretty impressed with how much of that sagittal plane deformity could be corrected with that osteotomy. Uh, interesting, interesting. And speaking of the radiographic outcomes, the one variable that was significantly different at postoperative follow-up was the uh, neck shaft angle. So one consideration would be to do a greater troke advancement, which in the manuscript you guys hypothesized that that's probably why that measure was better in the modified Dunn group. Would you consider doing the greater troke advancement in conjunction with the Imhauser, which seems like you'd be able to kind of accomplish both goals um, that you've set out to in the manuscript? Yeah, I think that is a good idea. I think traditionally the proximal femoral osteotomy was a pure flexion type osteotomy. And then we started adding some valgus along with that correction, which does distalize the troch a little bit. Um, I think if you separate that greater trochanteric fragment and distalize it separate from getting the proximal femoral fixation, that can definitely add a little bit of complication in terms of planning your implants, uh, whether to use the same implant to fix both the greater troch osteotomy as well as the proximal femoral osteotomy. So there are some challenges in doing both procedures, especially when you're first starting out in practice. It might be easier just to do a little bit of valgus, knowing that you won't completely correct the coronal plane. But once you get more comfortable with it, it might be something to try to distalize that greater choke fragment separately. Dr. Posny, talk a little bit about your AVN rates in your modified Dunn group. Kind of what was your standard procedure for assessing blood flow to the epiphysis intra-op and post-op, what you did to assess that blood flow? And then secondarily, do you think that this rate could be lowered with any sort of change in surgical technique or assessment intraoperatively? Yeah, so I think this is a little bit of an older cohort from 2005 to 2015. So 
we weren't using any of the newer techniques to monitor uh, perfusion intraoperatively. Primarily, the main technique that was used was to put a, a, a two millimeter drill hole in the anterior epiphysis to see how well perfused it was. And I think it's really challenging in these hips where the physis is closed, you're almost doing a femoral neck osteotomy. So to do that while keeping the retinacular flap intact can be difficult. And then especially if you're correcting that sagittal plane deformity of the epiphysis, again, like we talked about, you know, bringing it all the way over without putting too much tension on the retinaculum can be challenging. So that has changed. So even though we're not performing these modified duns in stable healed slips, when we are doing it in acute unstable slips, we are monitoring the perfusion a little bit better. So a couple of the strategies we use now is to place an intracranial pressure monitor either through the femoral neck within a screw to actively monitor the perfusion in the epiphysis, or we also are using Doppler on the retinacular vessels through the piriformis fossa and then up the back of the neck just to make sure that there's good flow throughout that flap while we're performing these corrections. And that's actually helped a couple times during surgery. So once we get the epiphysis realigned and fix it in place, if there isn't good perfusion, there's things that we can do to take tension off of the flap, you know, shorten the neck a little bit, or remove a little bit more callus on that posterior inferior neck to make sure that, you know, once the correction is maintained, there's good perfusion of the epiphysis. Interesting. It'll be it'll be interesting to see as more results come out now that more and more people have gone to intraoperative vascular monitoring to see if that can reduce the rates of AVN at all with the modified done. And then yeah. one thing you mentioned in the paper is that since you noted some of these outcomes with your Imhauser, that you've gone to using 3D printing for patient-specific models preoperatively for your planning. So anecdotally, as you look back over the last few years since you've been going to that technique, do you think this is something that's helped your outcomes and uh, improved your radiographic variables? I do. I really do. Um, we had a publication where we looked at the 3D prints specifically, and while there were still a few complications in the group that had the 3D printing since that time over the last two or three years, when we do use the 3D prints, I really haven't seen any of the same implant-related complications or you know the ability to achieve as much deformity correction as I would would like after planning the surgery with the 3D print. So I think it helps me in two ways, primarily to understand the deformity completely, kind of see it in all three planes, figure out the ideal position of that proximal femoral fragment, but also to figure out where exactly to put my blade plate and how to orient it in relation to the lateral cortex of the femur, because it's really hard to get good orthogonal views in surgery, especially in these patients who have a significant deformity. So it's nice to know where the implant should belong to have kind of optimal fixation of those fragments. So I think it has helped me quite a bit. Great. And kind of a follow-up to that is, do you think that we should look more at just the proximal femur when we're planning these osteotomies? Like, should we consider the acetabular variables and kind of treat the hip as more of a global hip rather than just focusing on the proximal femur? I think we should. Um, there's definitely been a lot of work done on the acetabular side to show that the acetabulum in these patients is retroverted to begin with, and um, you want to be able to put the proximal femur 
in a position where you're not going to have you know, residual impingement. I think it's a little bit challenging to know exactly what that relationship should be for each patient. So what most of these patients are getting CT scans at our institution, and we are looking at how the contralateral hip is positioned. But oftentimes, there's some proximal femoral deformity present on the contralateral side as well. So we've been trying to figure out how to figure out the relationship between the astablum and the proximal femur, but I think more work needs to be done on that. Yeah, very good. I think this is a, a great manuscript. And as you guys mentioned in your conclusions, it, it did lead to some change of practice at your institution and certainly can be used by others who are, are treating child and adolescent hip deformity to have some important considerations going in. So I appreciate you joining us very much. And before I let you go, I have one last question for you. Uh, as sure. a pediatric and adolescent hip surgeon who performs a wide variety of procedures, which one is your favorite surgery to perform and gets you the most excited going into the case? Oh, that's an interesting question. You know, so I'd say the periastabular osteotomy is actually my favorite procedure um, just because it's so rewarding, the type of correction that you can get. And it's always fun to walk uh, residents or fellows kind of through that procedure because there's so much uh, three-dimensional thought and planning that goes into it. Or, uh, you know, the more sure also is a very interesting and challenging procedure. So between those two, I think still PAOs would, would probably be my favorite procedure. Perfect. Well, again, appreciate your time and uh, look forward to talking to you in the future. Great. Thanks so much, Josh. Thank you, Josh and Salil. Great stuff. Now I'll hand things over to another co-host for some spine, some sports, and another conversation with a senior author. I'm Craig Lauer. We're broadcasting from the University of North Carolina. I'm here with Dr. Jim Sanders. He's a senior author on a paper entitled Common Elements in Surgical Site Infection Care Bundles for Adolescent Idiopathic Scoliosis at North American Pediatric Institutions, a survey of POSNA QSVI challenge participants. Uh, this is also from lead author Matthew Ottjen. And in this study, the authors, who are all members of the spine subgroup of the POSNA QSVI committee, sent a survey to member institutions to look at elements of the respective surgical site infection bundles. And then they sent a follow-up qualitative survey to ask for tips on implementation of those bundles. So we had 15 out of the 35 eligible sites respond to the survey. And Dr. Sanders, do you mind summarizing for the listeners what the main findings or the main takeaways of this survey were? Well, the main findings are that there were quite a few things that people had done in terms of creation of their bundles. There were very few of them that I would say were incredibly scientifically based, but a lot of them that at least made logical sense. And there were a number of common elements that we found that people were doing across the board, probably because all of us have been talking about these things, trying to figure out what to do for years. And so we were simply able to summarize those for people. And so the main recommendations, uh, as I recall, preoperatively, we're doing CHG wipes, a large percentage of uh, centers were performing that, as well as preoperative antibiotics. Anything surprising that you noticed in the results? Uh, you know, MRSA screening was also on there. There were some who were doing various types of labs that they thought that were important for it. But no, I think that really gathers most of it. So let's say, just hypothetically, you were at an institution and you had just shown up, maybe, and you were going to institute a spine SSI bundle at that place. So in your ideal world, what would you do in that bundle with what you know and the results of the survey? First of all, I think just showing up and creating a bundle is not the right process. Almost all of these places have gone through a multidisciplinary process of identifying what are the major issues that they face at that 
particular institution. That includes getting infectious disease, nursing, people who understand the epidemiology, understand the patients that you're actually seeing, and the flow of patients. I think for all the places that are succeeding with SSI bundles, it's the key is getting people there at the institution who know what's going on involved. And your qualitative survey that was kind of a follow-up makes, makes reference to multidisciplinary approach and also makes reference to maybe getting other full-time employees to help with the implementation of a bundle. Do you think that's a necessary step or something that can be other institutions should fight for to get a full-time employee to help implement their bundles? I can tell you from our experience that we had a full-time employee who helped us with our pediatric surgical QI efforts, and many of the sites had that. Those that had more successful programs almost always seemed to have somebody who was assigned to doing this. It could be someone who was also helping with pediatric NISQIP. It could be somebody else. But these things take time. It's hard for surgeons and for nurses who have very, very busy clinical schedules to carve out all of that time, to collate all of the different things, and to actually even just schedule and make meetings happen. I think advocating for a full-time FTE to help us create these quality initiatives is really important. I wanted to get your comments just on the design of this study. It's a little bit unique in that it's not hypothesis and sort of hard evidence-based. It's based off of a survey and, hey, what do you guys do for this sort of thing? Um, what do you think the future is of that type of research and what advantages or disadvantages does it have? Well, it's not, you can't say this is hard science in the way that doing an RCT looking for causes of SSI would be and how you would treat it. The problem is for those, you need huge numbers. You're never going to be able to get those numbers out of one site. They're very, very hard and very expensive out of multiple sites. Yet all of us have to do something because we have to decrease our SSI rates in the long run. Our patients are at high risk. We're treating kids with cerebral palsy, bad disorders. So this is a chance to actually identify what other colleagues are doing. And our other colleagues in POSNA who are doing this are smart people. They've figured out how to put together teams, develop these things. I think it's really nice that we don't have to develop things from scratch. That's the utility of this type of paper. I really appreciate you and your co-authors' efforts. And any last takeaways for the audience? Uh, get out there, start doing it. We want to, we want to solve this issue, and we're not going to solve it with RCTs. We have to do it with, by creating multidisciplinary teams, identifying what are our patients' risk factors, and trying to mitigate those the best we can. Perfect. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Next, we will discuss an article entitled "Management of Pediatric Type One Open Fractures in the Emergency Department or Operating Room: A Multicenter Perspective." This comes from lead author Jenna Godfrey from CHLA and senior author Alexander Arcader from CHOP. The background is that single-center studies have called into question the necessity of operative debridement for type 1 open fractures in children, and non-operative methods in those studies seem to show no increased harm over operative management with occasional advantages. So the purpose of this study was to again compare outcomes of pediatric patients with type 1 open fractures who were either managed with antibiotics and superficial wound debridement in the emergency department versus those managed with antibiotics and operative debridement. The methods included a retrospective chart review of all patients from 2000 to 2015 treated at four high-volume pediatric trauma centers for open fractures of either the radius, ulna, or tibia. The patients were 2 to 18 years old, had to have follow-up greater than four weeks that indicated proper fracture healing, and they were excluded if they were polytrauma, high-energy, or immunocompromised patients. The analysis looked at the details and timing of treatment as well as the complications and the length of stay. 
As for the results, there were 219 patients included in the study. 22% of these were managed non-operatively, 78% were managed operatively. The operatively treated patients were significantly older with a mean age of 10 and a half years versus 8.4 years for those treated non-operatively. As for their main outcome, which was infection, the rates were 2% in the non-operative group and 0% in the operative group, which was not statistically different. The one infection in the non-operative group ended up undergoing an operative IND within a week and had uneventful healing without further complications. As for their secondary outcomes, the length of stay and the length of hospital-administered antibiotic treatment was nearly three times as long in the operative group than the non-operative group, and this was statistically significant. In terms of complications, there was one loss of reduction in the non-operative group that underwent further surgery. There were nine other complications in the operative group, including two compartment syndromes, one acute carpal tunnel syndrome, and three malunions. This rate of secondary complications was not statistically different. As for the limitations of this study, the main limitation is, again, power. Even with 49 non-operative patients, which is the largest cohort so far, the power to demonstrate a difference is limited. Their post-doc analysis only shows 47% power. So this means that they're currently at pretty high risk of, quote-unquote, proving no difference when, in fact, there may be one. The authors ultimately conclude that given the similar safety profile of both of these treatment options, that either are reasonable choices when dealing with a type 1 open fracture in a pediatric population. As for the takeaway, this is additional evidence that non-operative management does appear to be relatively safe. doesn't add much power to the prior studies, but the inclusion of a comparison group at this scale does at least allow us to see the many differences in apparent length of stay and also lets us see that operative treatment is not entirely benign and has some potential complications as well. The authors conclude by acknowledging the ongoing randomized clinical trial regarding this subject and hope that it can mitigate many of the limitations of this and the prior studies. Thank you, Craig. That's a very useful article. And next, I'll hand things over to our fourth co-host for another very practical article, this one on guided growth. Julia Sanders from Colorado Children's Hospital here, and I'd like to share with you a great article from this month's journal entitled Rebound Deformity After Growth Modulation in Patients with Coronal Plane Angular Deformities About the Knee. Who gets it and how much? This research was contributed by Dr. Laval and colleagues at Texas Scottish Rite in Dallas. As guided growth becomes a commonplace method of deformity correction in younger patients, surgeons are often faced with the conundrum of when to remove implants in a skeletally immature patient. We know there is a risk of rebound deformity, and many surgeons will aim to overcorrect the initial deformity prior to hardware removal. However, there is minimal data to guide us in this calculation. The authors sought to quantify the magnitude of rebound deformity after growth modulation and identify the risk factors for this phenomenon. They retrospectively reviewed 67 limbs in 45 patients who underwent guided growth with tension bands for coronal plane deformity at the knee. The average age at time of guided growth was 9.8 years, with implant removal at an average of 11.4 years. Initial mean hip-knee ankle angle was 167 degrees, with a mean angle prior to implant removal being 174 degrees. There was an average overcorrection of 3.5 degrees past neutral. After implant removal, 52% of patients had a hip-knee ankle angle change of more than 5 degrees. 30% had more than 10 degrees. Average rebound was 6.9 degrees. Almost all patients had a rebound in the same direction and in the same bone as the original deformity, indicating a true rebound effect. 
17 limbs in 12 patients in the study underwent revision surgery for recurrent deformity at an average time of 627 days and an average angle of 11.6 degrees. Younger age, which the authors defined as less than 10 in females and less than 12 in males, and more severe initial deformity, described as greater than 20 degrees, were both found to be risk factors for rebound. In light of these results, the authors are cautious to propose guidelines for overcorrection. While 52% of patients had more than 5 degrees of rebound, that leaves almost another half with less than 5 degrees. No single patient characteristic was found to be 100% predictive of rebound deformity. Further prospective work is clearly needed to provide a more detailed algorithm for guided growth. However, this research does support overcorrection to a clinically acceptable alignment in most patients. Thank you, Julia. Our next paper is a complicated and very clever article from DuPont by Donahoe et al. with senior author James Bowen. The authors developed a classification for infants with a specific type of arthrogryposis based on the baby's leg position, and they were able to predict long-term ambulatory function. The specific type of arthrogryposis in this study is amyoplasia, which encompasses about a third of all cases of arthrogryposis multiplex congenita and involves all four extremities. The author's classification has five types, and all types had similar prevalences, though the study was too small to really determine how common each type is. Type 1 is the mildest category, and these infants present with relatively normal leg position, though they tend to have bilateral club feet, which are common in all categories. All type 1 patients were full community ambulators in adulthood. Types 2 and 3 look similar at first. These are infants who present in a frog leg position. The main difference was better strength in group 2, especially the glutes and quads. In the long term, children in group 2 did moderately well. More than half were either community or household ambulators. On the other hand, children in group 3 had weak muscles as infants and all relied on wheelchairs in adulthood. This is consistent with previous literature suggesting muscle strength may be more important than contractures in determining long-term function in arthrogryposis. Of note though, all of these patients were able to stand during childhood at some point. Unlike types 2 and 3, type 4 infants present with hips adducted and flexed. So, unsurprisingly, there were more dysplastic hips in this group. Additionally, their knees tend to be fixed in extension. These patients had good muscle strength, and the vast majority of type 4 patients in the study became community ambulators. Type 5 infants presented with their legs in different positions. Typically, one was extended at the knee, and this side was dysplastic. Long-term outcomes were harder to predict in this group, with about a quarter becoming community ambulators, about half becoming household ambulators, and about a quarter relying on wheelchairs. In conclusion, infants with arthrogryposis multiplex congenita caused by amyoplasia can be classified based on their leg position and muscle strength in order to predict their ambulatory function in adulthood. In my opinion, this is a fascinating study and I've already used it to counsel the family of a patient in subgroup 4. Now for our last article, I'll hand things back over to Julia for a conversation with the author of an article about the timing of when to start pavlik harness treatment. I'm here with Dr. Jay Janicki from Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago. Um, he'll be discussing with us his paper entitled, Timing of Pavlik Harness Initiation, Can We Wait? Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you for having me, Julia. So first, could you tell me what inspired you to investigate the idea of waiting to start Pavlik treatment? I know many providers and parents have a sense of urgency when a newborn is diagnosed with DDH. So like many pediatric pediatric orthopedic surgeons, I was trained to start Pavlik harness treatment pretty quickly when they came into the clinic. 
either the clinic or even the newborn nurse, even the newborn nursery. Often during that time, families come in and we tell them they would need treatments. And obviously, people would get upset and mothers started crying and they knew that it needed to be done. I started to ask myself, is this really that, is this really that necessary? Arlo himself, um, originally back in the 60s, estimated that up to 80% of unstable hips will spontaneously stabilize on their own without doing anything at all by two months of age. And then there's never really been a paper talking about the timing of, of the stabilization and whether there's any better success at one or two months of age with a pelvic harness versus one or two days of age. And in addition to that, given 0.1.2, the first month or so is really, really important in newborn in neonatal period. It's really important for bonding between the parents, breastfeeding, bathing, dressing for all tasks that can seem overwhelming even without a pelvic harness. And so what I usually tell families is why add another variable into an already very complicated equation, especially if it's not going to be necessary. We believe that by allowing parents to establish the comfortable routines prior to initiating pelvic harness treatments, it actually may increase compliance once the pelvic has started and so not be quite as overwhelmed. Many orthopedic surgeons still use pelvic harness before 30 days of age. Um, with our study, we wanted to determine if there was an increased risk of pelvic harness failure with later initiation. That makes total sense. So how did you go about answering your question? Um, studying the DDH population retrospectively is notoriously difficult. That is definitely the case. We, had, we also had a retrospective study just using chart review. We identified pelvic harness failure as whether or not a surgery or another intervention was necessary. We were able to identify 176 infants who were diagnosed with hip dysplasia by ultrasound or exam under the age of six months and then were subsequently treated with a pelvic harness. We then subdivided these into three groups. Those we started with pelvic harness plus 30 days of age, those between 30 and 60 days, and those between 60 and 180 days. We found that the patients who presented at an average about above 1.2 months, and the initiation of treatments was also right around this time. We had a 21% failure rate, which fits pretty well with the literature, which is somewhere between 15 and 25%. There, we found there was no difference in the age of initiation um, in the three groups when the Pavlix was started and no increased likelihood of failure. There's a higher percentage of bilateral DDH in the failure group. There's no differences in respect to sex reach position. So your results showed that failures of Pavlik treatment increased very slightly with time. So the babies that started in the Pavlik under 30 days of age had a, about a 20% failure rate, and those over 60 days had 26.2% failure rate. How far do you think we can push the envelope safely? And, and what is your protocol now that you have this information? I'm not really sure we have the exact answer yet. What we do offer is studying the pelvic harness in certain situations after one month of age, since it's really unusual. And the hip is unstable, will stabilize spontaneously after that point. Our protocol at Lurie is based on shared decision-making with the, with the patients and patient's family. So in patients who are barlopositive, so hips that are reduced or able to be dislocated, we offer them the opportunity to wait until four to six weeks of age to see if it's stabilized on their own. Or lani positive hips or hips which are unstable at rest, I still continue to treat right upon presentation. We advise the family that the children should not be swallowed and I should not have hip exams by providers other than me or our staff. What we do is they have them come back at four to six weeks of age for ultrasound and clinical exam, and if they are unstable still, 
we will start public harness treatment by that point. Great. Well, shared decision-making makes a big difference with compliance, for sure. So one last talking point. Who do you think should be starting Pavlik treatment? I know some general orthopedists and pediatricians will place Pavliks on babies with abnormal exams because they worry about a delay in treatment. Yeah, it's been a great question. There can be complications with Pavlik harness treatment, such as avascular necrosis, the femoral head, peripheral nerve palsy, failure to recognize an irreducible hip. We believe that Pavlik should be placed and adjusted by those who train pediatric orthopedic surgeons. Now that we know that the waiting a little longer to initiate treatment doesn't really result in higher failure rates, we now hope to educate primary care providers that they have time to refer the patients to pediatric or orthopedics without missing any critical windows for care. We've actually had a recent paper out that's looking at our protocol with waiting. In positive 2% under two weeks of age, we found 30 infants who, in shared decision-making, were willing to wait. 11 of those hips after one month were treated with pelvic harness. Seven hips were treated after 12 weeks with a pelvic harness, and 12 actually received no treatment at all. And in this whole group, there were no failures. So we have some indication that the uh, waiting period with the surgeon carefully watching could be a good strategy. Great. Well, thanks so much for sharing your findings and insights with our listeners. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Thank you, Julia, and thanks to all the listeners who joined us for the August episode of the podcast. We hope you've learned something, and we hope you'll subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen. 